Welcome to Humans in Public Health. I'm Megan Hall. In the past few years, the field of public health has become more visible than ever before, but it's always played a crucial role in our daily lives. Each month, we talk to people who make this work possible. Today, in honor of National Public Health Week, we have a special bonus episode with students at the Master of Public Health, or MPH, program at the Brown University School of Public Health. So my name is Darlene Tatt. I'm Shaw Hubbard. My name is Yuri Benajoud. Sophia Patrillo. I am from Boston, Massachusetts. From Pleasanton, California. Southeastern Massachusetts. And I am from Providence, Rhode Island. Every year, MPH students at Brown present their work during National Public Health Week. And in that spirit, we've decided to spend this episode hearing more from Darlene, Yuri, Shaw, and Sophia about their research and experiences. But first, what's something we should know about you that's not related to your studies? I was a competitive gymnast for basically my entire life leading up to college. I began when I was two and continued until I recently retired last year uh, at the age of 22. A fun fact would be that I speak uh, three languages. So I speak French and German. My dad is Algerian and my mom is German. So I have a lot of family abroad and I love visiting them and visiting other countries. I'm actually a pharmacist. I did a residency for a year that focused on diabetes care in the outpatient setting. I'm a certified massage therapist. It was my first experience in a healthcare-adjacent field. I was able to work um, as a volunteer massage therapist in D.C. I was working on injured veterans and their families who were there while they rehabbed. For each of these students, the COVID-19 pandemic in some way affected their decision to study public health on a deeper level. December 12th was the first day I started vaccinating people. And I remember on my first day vaccinating, there was an emergency room physician who actually gave me champagne. As a senior in high school, I had this unique opportunity to work in a um, emergency room and intensive care unit. We would see folks coming in through the doors and it's you don't know what's going to come through. So those sliding doors open, whether it's a patient that's walking or just on a stretcher, you have no control of what goes on in the outside world. You just have to deal with the problem as it comes to you. And I kind of wanted to be on the other side of those sliding glass doors where I was actually implementing policies or strategies to prevent people from having to need to go into the ER. Different factors put Brown School of Public Health on their radar, but the biggest draw was the faculty. So I developed this interest in incarceration and public health kind of tangentially along the way, reading a lot about it. Ventilation and natural light and various things that you can do to improve the way prisons and jails are constructed. And Brad Brockman is an adjunct faculty member here at Brown. He's in the health policy department. And he's a former prisoner's rights lawyer. And he would go into prisons and fight for healthcare rights for his clients, you know, who were in long-term segregation or on death row. They might have cancer and they needed treatment and he was helping fight for those rights. And he teaches a class in the effects of incarceration on public health. It seemed like there was a momentum happening at Brown. I saw like a Ashish Jaw on the air. I saw Megan Rainey on the air. I have benefited from being a part of an institution that has folks front and center. I mean, we were living and we're still living in a public health emergency. And I saw that Brown was kind of leading the path in a lot of different avenues. When they got to Brown, students could choose from one of eight concentrations to focus their studies, like global health, epidemiology, and health behavior. Darlene decided to chart her own path. So the interdisciplinary track is when you can customize your curriculum per your interests, and mine is focused in pharmacy health services research. One of the culminating events of the year is Public Health Research Day in April. Brown students and trainees get to present their research posters publicly to the community and a panel of judges. 
Darlene is presenting research on how nursing homes administer insulin to their residents with diabetes. She found that many nursing homes aren't following standard guidelines. Basically, they're supposed to be a personalized plan that minimalizes low blood sugar incidences and high blood sugar incidences. That personalized plan, which aims to prevent abnormal blood sugar readings, is called the basal bolus regimen. Instead, Darlene says many nursing homes are using a method called sliding scale insulin. That's when a nurse collects a few drops of blood from a patient to check the levels of their blood sugar before they give the insulin. The blood sugar is already high at that point. You're not managing it before it gets high. It's not proactive. It's considered a reactive form of blood sugar management. Even though the nurse can give insulin or sugar in response to a high or low blood sugar, a temporary drop or elevation of blood sugar can still be harmful. And blood sugar readings require, you know, a finger stick glucose test. And if you're doing that multiple times per day, that's quite burdensome to nursing home staff. During the pandemic, there's been a lot of staffing issues that has been highly publicized and even shown in literature where there's, you know, a shortage of people that can even give these finger sticks. So this is kind of just a descriptive paper of what does use look like instead of why are they doing it? But we'd need some qualitative studies to maybe, you know, interview different staff in the nursing homes to see why they are deviating from current clinical guidelines. Sophia looked at a different group people who are pregnant. Before you get a clinical test for the condition of obstructive sleep apnea, which essentially is when you stop breathing while you're asleep for a short period of time, the predictive tools were not designed for pregnant individuals. They were designed for the average population. So I wanted to see how accurate they could be for our population. Obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, is usually diagnosed with a sleep test. But to figure out who should get a sleep test, clinicians can use different screening tools. They collect information on a host of different variables, biological and physiological factors mostly, and provide a total score for an individual. If a patient scores high enough, they're considered at higher risk for OSA, meaning they probably need further testing. What have you found out? Some of them are more accurate than others, depending on which variables they collect. So variables that are likely to change a lot in pregnancy, for example, body mass index is a major one. They're carrying more weight at the end of their pregnancy than average individuals. That's a factor that is likely to cause the predictive tool to have decreased accuracy. Not much more than 50% of the time are the tools correctly identifying individuals. What should we do instead? I am in the process of developing a new prediction model that will hopefully have a higher accuracy for pregnant individuals than the tools that exist right now. Shaw looked at a different area of health dentistry. There's this concept called the widowhood effect, which is that your um, risk of mortality increases when you've lost a spouse to death. I thought, oh, it would be interesting to compare the exposure of widowhood compared to the other exposures, you know, the other unmarried statuses, and then look at a health outcome. I chose dental health screenings because people don't go to the dentist. They don't want to, first of all. They don't want to be lectured because they didn't floss. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they don't have insurance. Insurance is much more complicated to get, and Medicare doesn't um, include dentistry. But I found that the widowed people were 30% less likely to have been to the dentist in the previous two years. Outside of research, these students practice public health in the community and nationwide. 
As part of the curriculum, Brown's MPH program requires students to do an applied public health experience, an opportunity to take their work outside of the classroom. And one of the most transformational experiences at Brown that I got to be a part of was uh, this fellowship with ABC News. And so I applied to be a part of this ABC uh, News medical unit. And we kind of work in three different pillars. So number one, we want to make sure that everything that the network is doing is medically accurate. The second pillar is making sure that we have the most up-to-date news. So, you know, are the COVID vaccines going to be, you know, newly authorized? What is the CDC discussing in terms of future endeavors? You know, what's going on in the field of healthcare? And then the third pillar, producing news, I, I would say is the last one. So whether that be writing digital articles, whether we're making TikToks or whether we're, you know, sharing um, different information to the network. So we try to gather news and then share it out. Overall, it was a great experience. I absolutely loved it. I've also done a lot of work in intervention design and implementation, particularly at the community-based level through my applied public health experience, which I did this summer in Boston, a community health center there. That translation of we have findings from our data and we want to help people, I think that is where I see myself. After they receive their MPH, the students planned ahead in new directions. I definitely want to work in maybe a community-based setting where I can really affect populations. So probably maybe a population health pharmacist role or a research role where I can kind of analyze data related to larger populations. But I, I would really like to work with disadvantaged populations. There's the nonprofit route where hopefully I would be able to continue to do more of a hands-on approach. I would love to do post-incarceration, like re-entry work, helping people get connected with healthcare and helping them continue to live healthy lives. I mean, I have a lot of institutional experience, so I think I have a lot to offer in that area as well. And so a state healthcare agency or really any like large institution that just needs somebody who kind of knows how to get the right communications going. Really enjoyed my health communications class this semester. I'm very interested in just disseminating research. This past experience with ABC News has really crafted my passion for health communication. I think that's something that we've really struggled with in the pandemic. And I also am interested in health technology. I will be moving down to D.C. over the summer and I will be doing consulting there. I've really only hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of what else I could learn, what else I can investigate. I've learned that I really love working with data. Darlene Tat. Shaw Hubbard, Sophia Petrillo, and Yuri Benajoud are MPH students at the Brown University School of Public Health. The Brown MPH program offers experience, training, and education in research, health policy, and population health. Humans in Public Health is a monthly podcast brought to you by Brown University School of Public Health. This episode was produced by Tino Della Merced. I'm Megan Hall. Talk to you soon.